Welcome back, boys and girls. I hope you guys are having a fantastic day. Today, I've got award-winning documentary filmmaker and author DJ Kadagian. This man is a wealth of knowledge, and we're going to talk about near-death experiences, the thousands of reports that he has studied and researched, and psychedelics for therapy. Of course, so much more. It's an hour-long plus episode, so there's a wealth of knowledge here that I want to share with you. My name is Mike. Every week I discuss topics I care about. This is Among Them. Today's Daily is brought to you by GrassDoor.com. Cannabis delivery made simple. Save 40%. Use the code DAILY at checkout. It is definitely the number one sponsor for this channel, so thank goodness for them. More links down below if you want to support the channel. Do you hear me yet? I can hear you, yeah. Oh, uh, there we go. All right. You can hear right. me though, right? Yeah, I hear you well. I'm, I tried to set it up using the... Uh, desktop version and wouldn't let me do it so i guess i'm using the online version ah that's strange yeah <clears throat> well i i appreciate you still making it i, I understand it's um these things happen so no problem forgive my voice i've been sick since the last time we spoke for the two hours we spent together uh so still recovering sound, man sound good do uh, i oh well better than yesterday then <laughs> man i don't know her computer that's my issue all right i'm i'm good sorry no it's all right i mean while you know while i've been waiting i uh have been spending the uh the weekend and a little bit of today as well just going through the many works that you've done man uh just out of curiosity and um I went through uh, some of the books that were mentioned in your profile, the crossover experience and my very own psychedelic psychotherapy, uh, looking at the reviews on Amazon, seeing what people are saying, uh, various things. It's very, very interesting. This near-death experience um, book is uh, quite interesting to me. And I found someone else that had wrote, I guess, an article after the fact um, just kind of outlining some things. And I, you know, I have to agree with some of this, just the basic idea of what they're saying. It's like all throughout history and all of these cultures spanning the globe, there is a lot of references to death and, and the, um, the statues that are put up, the coffins, the, you name it. Um, and yet in today's world, there's not a whole lot of, uh, even thought behind the spiritual nature of any of it. I think people are distracted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got a little of that going on. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's a mind. I mean, to me, it was mind blowing concept. Um, Cause I, I come at it uh, from a numbers, you know, re what really grabbed me were the, uh, the statistics. Cause my background is so much in, uh, trading like we you know we spoke of and <clears throat> yeah i'm a real skeptic so i when i started to study this stuff I, I had looked into it 20 some odd years ago and there just wasn't a lot of research out there and so right. i you know it sounded really unbelievable but there just wasn't enough you know for me to sink my teeth into and it's such a unbelievable you know phenomenon so you you know for me I'm like okay I got to really really kick the tires here and 
there turned out to be a website called, <clears throat> if you ever want to go to it, if your listeners want to, it's uh, nderf.com, uh, Near Death Experience Research Foundation. And they've been collecting for almost 30 years testimonials. People go on the site, fill in a very comprehensive testimonial, and um, a lot, a lot of information there, you know, how, how they came to their, to become dead. You know, a lot, a lot of the only, uh, when I was researching and for the book, I only used people that had had a, a, a cardiac arrest and either in a hospital setting or around an EMT, a doctor, so that these people were gone. Because a lot of times you'll read about them and, and they're not, they never, they didn't actually die. And when you have cardiac arrest, you're sh you're off. I mean, you know, no brain waves. You have no ability to form memory, nothing. So I just stuck with that. And I read through about 4,000 of these things, kind of sifting wow. out the ones that really made a lot of, I mean, really struck me and kind of qualified for this. You know, I kind of had a um, threshold of what I was looking at for the book. So they had to be over a certain age. Because if a kid gets it and they're younger, you know, now they're going to kind of interpret it through their parents. So some lost in translation. If somebody said they had, you know, three or four, you know, I'm like, the odds of that statistically are so low that just just to, I'm constantly trying to skew the odds in my favor. Um, so there were, there were a, a number of things that were really important. Like if somebody said, well, I saw a UFO. Or, you know, this or that. I've read thousands of these things, and there's certain things that just don't happen. And people talked about them a lot. I mean, I've read about them a lot, but not a lot. But um, th these outliers are so rare. And and the, the ND testimonials that I researched are so unbelievably consistent that when, when there is an outlier, it's very, very easy for me to spot it. So I screened those out. So I screened and screened and screened. And I probably got down to 200 testimonials that really were, you know, the, to me, the real deal. And uh, that's what's <clears throat> included in the book. And and the more I looked at these things, I kind of, what, what blew me away is that the, um, the testimonials are so unbelievably consistent certain things that happen, certain things that they feel, and it's consistent no matter what the race, you know, religion, gender, no difference, no difference. And so that's when I'm like, man, something is seriously going on. And and then I looked a little bit at, you know, quantum physics and certain things, you know, what the, you know, uh, block time, uh, non-local consciousness, all these kinds of things that are now like, okay, okay, these are real. And, and one of the reasons that we're starting to hear a lot about this is, you know, it was very, very, very uncommon for someone to be brought back from cardiac arrest when you're gone. It wasn't until we really started to use um, CPR back in the 60s. Now they were starting to bring people back, you know, after minutes, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour. So before that, you couldn't do it. So we're, we're what happened is now over the last 30 years, because there's been so many of them that have been really you know, very um, responsibly recorded. There are major, major studies that are out there that have been, you know, published in in very, very reputable peer review um, sites like the Lancet Journal. 
Um, so this stuff, you know, subjective, uh, retrospective studies, like this stuff is solid. And the more you look at it, it's like, I mean, it just blows me away. I have a website. I, I think it, I mean, I, I brought all this research together. So it links to all these, you know, peer reviewed studies, their books, you know, I've taken some of the top, uh, YouTube videos that are lectures from researchers, people that have had testimonials scientists, quantum scientists, and so on. And if any, anybody wants to see it, it's nde-central.com. And, you know, I, I re researched the hell out of it, and, and I hadn't really found a site that was just dedicated to NDE that kind of pulled everything together, you know, research, videos, um, you know, books, and the whole thing. So I kind of built what I wanted to go see, and, I, you know, uh, not to be... Um, boastful, but I really think it's, you know, the best site out there for someone who really wants to, you know, dip their toe into what is a near-death experience. There's a lot of really cool things to watch and to read on there. I think that makes sense though, man, is um, the fact that uh, in the last 20 to 30 years, we've gotten better at resuscitating people. And uh, I think you mentioned it. Uh, it's quite important to responsibly document uh for many reasons right and uh through that documentation you can really go back you can um review it and and see what uh what stands out and so even for medical professionals it's uh, I'm, I'm sure it's kind of like what the hell is yeah. this you know b being that they're academics and they're they're practicing physicians and uh there's there's so much more to life than um what science can explain and what i've learned over the years as i've uh, looked into so many things and just uh kind of um indulging my curiosities is just uh the basic principle that science is a tool of measurement and we have many tools of measurement but there are some things that we haven't developed tools for so um until then they remain mysteries uh how did you how did you become curious about uh what is this nde um in general how did you end up down this rabbit hole you did a, so yeah. much research i would say when i you know when i really first started to become interested in you know what's really going on here um you know i really uh got pulled in by joseph campbell um and you know really started studying the world's religions um and, you know, a big thread through this is, you know, is what's going on afterwards and death and dying. Um, a lot of that being, say, metaphor with, you know, ego death. Um, so, you know, ego death. I mean, that's that's really what it's a little bit more tied into. Um, but when I stumbled across uh, like the Tibetan Book of the Dead and that kind of gets into more of um, practically what's happening, you know, what's that this is not a metaphor, this is for real. And these are some of the things that we do when somebody dies to help them transition to the next place. And I had, <clears throat> I had a huge interest in, in ego death, you know, cause you know, I, mine is out of control. <laughs> <laughs> and like my feeling is if I want to get further down the line, I really got to tame this thing. 
But also, I mean, in all honesty, I have, well, most of us do, if we really think about it, because I've spent so much time thinking about it, is we have a fear of death, especially here in the West. So I became very interested in it. And, and then I stumbled on Raymond Moody's book. He's probably the most well-known. He was a, a practicing physician. So he started to see patients of his that had said, hey, you know, this is what happened to me. And, you know, uh, one of the gentlemen that was in my book, I, I pulled in two different people to uh, contribute. And his name was Pim Van Lommel. He came out around the same time. He's a cardiologist uh, in Holland and, and uh, Netherlands. And he, uh, he started to see this with his patients, you know, after he bring, you know, after mm -hmm. surgery, you know, these people came back from cardiac arrest and they said, doctor, here's, you, you won't believe it, but I'm going to tell you what happened to me. And he started to hear enough of that where he's like this, you know, I'm hearing the exact same thing. And they then can't he would, be ignored. Yeah. And then he would talk to other doctors that were hearing the exact same thing. So he best basically kind of moved away from his practice and really went down the road of near-death experience research. So he and Raymond Moody, but Raymond Moody, you know, back then was the guy in the United States. And so his book, Life, at, Life After Life, I think it was called, um, I read that. And that's really what got me going. But as I said, you know, it, it was almost, it, it was not quite tied into religion. And I was really getting into original religion and mythology and there wasn't enough research. So I'm like, okay, I'm interested in it. But then, you know, I let it go because I couldn't substantiate what was being said. And then um, about three years ago, um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but my son passed away and I was like wiped out. You know, I was a mess and like literally couldn't get out of bed for a long, long time. And so at one point, my, my uh, wife gives me this pamphlet, this like workbook. And she's like, you got to just go through this, you know, whatever. And it's like, you know, it's got reincarnation in it, past life regret, all these kinds of things. Um, and I wasn't really totally interested in those things. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm interested in them in general, but it was always a near-death experience that kind of blew my mind. And Anyway, I start going through this pant workbook and it's like, to me, one of these kind of corny things, you know, they ask you questions, you write them down, you know, whatever. So I'm trying to get through it just to get my mind off of this, you know, place I'm in. And, and then I stumbled on a section that was on the near-death experience. And, I'm, and then it connected me to some videos on YouTube. So I started watching these testimonials. And back then there were no testimonials. There was no YouTube. So you couldn't see this. And you could read about them and there weren't as many accounts because they just weren't documented. And, and again, the further you go back, the less there was anyway, because we started to see them much more, you know, with, with bringing people back uh, through CPR. So when I started watching these things, that's when I said, man, this is for real, because these people are not lying. They're saying the same things. These are people, a lot of them have... Not, not only nothing to gain from telling, talking about this, but actually, you know, it's, it's um, putting them in a bad position in terms of their reputation, and, you know, in yeah. business, doctors, you know, um, professors, you know, business people. But if you start watching these things, and, and again, if you go to the website, I've, I've, I've you know, uh, consolidated and, and my YouTube channel where you can watch like so many of these. And I really pick the ones that are like, this is the real deal. So that's when I said, man, and I, again, I had a lot, a lot of time lying in bed for a long time, wiped out. 
And uh, so I researched and studied, and then I started reading thousands of testimonials. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. I got to write a book on this because I wanted a book that was different than any other book I had seen. You know, I wanted to to break down because because there's like eight eight things that happen in a near death experience. Most most people don't have all eight. In fact, it's very rare. But a lot of people have three or four. Maybe these. Maybe these. Maybe these. When you put them together, though, it's the same story. What I wanted to do was create an overarching the theme. So I wanted to take hundreds of these and start to build a full near-death experience, like the arc of the whole story, and so that you could experience it because because the experience progresses in a in a very you know systematic pattern. You know, generally you don't start with this thing and then go back and have this thing. There, it's it's very uh, I don't want to say structured, but there's a rhythm to it. And then what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at the details, what people aren't talking about that I see. And I saw a few that made me believe even more that they were real because there were not really things that you'd want to think happen, but but it's it's true. And, and so when I saw that, <clears throat> those are the kinds of things. And, and one of them would be, you know, when people are are on the other side, they never see people that are alive. So it's not like a dream. It's not like a psychedelic experience. They're never alive. And um, the interesting thing is once in a while, somebody will see somebody that they thought was alive, and then they'll come back and realize that they were actually not alive anymore. So they see parent, they see um, uh, parents, sons, daughters, uh, relatives, along with other people. The one thing you would expect them to say most, especially because a lot of these people are elderly, they never see a spouse ever. I mean, maybe once in a blue moon, but almost never. And a lot of these people, obviously, they've had you know spouses predecease them because a lot of these people are older. Never. Now, what the hell is that? What that tells me is this is this is more real than you think. Because why isn't that happening? I mean, I have a theory as to why it's happening. And but why aren't people talking about this? Because not in my mind, not only does it make it less likely that it's real, it makes it more likely because everybody would want to see their spouse if they had predeceased them. But they never come back and, and give these testimonials that that's what's happening. And the other thing that's really so that's one thing. And the other thing that really struck me as like, okay, they wouldn't be. I mean, this is strange. The thing that they talk about most and having uh, such a a, a physical experience, although it's not a lot of things there are, that we think of as physical aren't quite the way we understand them. The, the, what they think, what they describe more than anything is, and being so moving is grass. And so you're like, why grass? And, and and they're like, you know, they'll come into this realm and they'll say the grass was unbelievable. It was glowing and it was like it wasn't like cut and manicured. It was never like anything like that. It was just, they'd said it was just perfect height and it was glowing and it was moving and it felt like you were walking on this kind of energy. And it's like, why would, you know, why would that be something that so many people would recognize? I mean, our definition of what great grass is, you know, it's perfectly mowed and there's no weeds and these kinds of things. So I was looking at details like that. And I'm like, who would think of that? Who would think of all these people coming back and saying the most common thing they speak of about nature is 
is grass. Why is it that they don't see their spouses? That makes no sense when they're seeing all these other people. But but again, in my mind, it makes it more. I can I can I believe it more because people aren't coming back and all saying the things that we want to hear or that they would like to have had happened. So it's like that's weird. Yeah, and, that's and a these, good point, isn't it? And there's a number of yeah. these things that people don't bring up because all the you know these organizations that talk about the near-death experience, all these things, they never bring it up. I've never heard that. But when you read thousands of them and you're and you're really seeing these things, you know, you get inside of them. You feel the rhythm of them. And the more I went, I'm like, what the hell? Very, very rarely that you see a pet or animals of any kind, which is really strange. Um, it's not common. Uh, it's not common that people hear like music. Um they don't often smell, you know, and, and a lot, I mean, you can get way down the rabbit hole on, you know, I mean, uh, I'm so got so deep into it. I felt like I was there, you know? So I have a lot of, a lot of the, uh, you know, kind of the nuances is what I wanted to experience and then articulate in the book. And so that's what crossover is. And I, and I think, you know, I like the way it turned out. Um, after each section. So we'll go through one section like, okay, this is going to be the um, life review, which is phenomenally interesting. So we would talk, we would, um, I would have testimonials of all these people that were having a life review in one chapter. And at the end of the chapter, myself, uh, this uh, cardiologist who really started this thing back in the 70s, and then one other person who was a scholar, but he looks at them from, you know, uh, historical, like what you're describing through history, through culture. And then he would, so he would have this perspective that, you know, because you're, you're getting some from people that are Hindu or, you know, they're from this country or that country, people that are atheists. And it's another thing. The atheists come to believe more in not, not necessarily God or Jesus, but in that some, that religion that, and I don't want to say religio really means to link back, to link back to the source. And we've destroyed the word, but it's, they believe in something. They don't, they're not, uh, they're not atheists anymore. And the people that are highly religious come back more towards the middle. And they're like, there is no real religion. You know, it's all this, you know, we're all the same. So it's like, there's this convergence where people become more connected, religio, religion, real religion. And that's what you kind of experience when you're up there, which is, again, that's very cool. It's not like, they come back and they say, well, no, if you're, if you're not Christian, you're not going. It's the opposite. People that had believed that um, are like, no, it, it doesn't matter what you are. Um, you know, this is, it's way, way bigger than that. So anyway, I can, if I start talking about the near-death experience, I, you know, obviously I wrote, wrote a book on it, but it's, it's phenomenally interesting. And uh, if I'd somebody's so. interested, I would, I would, I don't want to pump my own book, but I would read that because the way it's put together is is a really good foundation. And then the website, because there's so much to watch and to read. You know, there there's research if you want to read it. You know, it'll take directly to the page where this peer-reviewed study is. Um, very, very reputable um, articles and, and then links to books that you can get on Amazon, uh, which I don't get anything from. Um, and then just phenomenal videos. And I encourage them most, 
to watch the ones that are testimonials where people are saying, you know, giving their testimonial, what happened. And not only are they phenomenally interesting, not only do you see clear patterns, but you will see people that are not lying. And, you know, they're, they're very, very, very clear in what they saw. They, they call it more real than real. Um, like there's, it's beyond a lucid dream. And anyway, so I got, yeah, I went down that rabbit hole. I'm glad I did. It really changed my uh, perspective, you know, that there's a lot more going on. You know, I, I would say that my fear of death thing has, you know, diminished a great deal. And most people have had a, a near-death experience, not most, like 99% are like, we have no, they have no fear of death. And coming from the West, you know, we're we're all we don't even talk about it. Forget about being terrified of it. It's very very interesting to hear these people. Well, there's a couple of things that came up, and I definitely want to cover them. Um, I think you're uh, you brought up that interesting point that there's very specific things that people were uh, noticing, and that's um, and that's hard to ignore, especially when you see it again and again and again. Um, things that. Uh, uh, clearly, they may not be necessarily shared um, across a demographic of people who have experienced this. It's not like there's, I mean, maybe now, nowadays, there's a, probably a Facebook group uh, for people who have experienced this. And so they share their ideas and their experiences. But uh, let's say 20 years ago, maybe not so much. Um, and that uh, and that's incredibly fascinating. The, the fact that um, you mentioned there's about eight th- things that generally occur, um, but n- not all of them occur in majority of the cases. Uh, what are these eight different scenarios? I don't even know what to call them. And um, I guess stages. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so if, if it's not structured, so there's this rhythm to it, then how, how would it go? What are these eight stages? If you are familiar with it and beyond that, if you can elaborate as to what are the, three to four that um, are most commonly experienced because that's quite curious to me. Well, the first thing that happens, and interestingly, it's probably the thing that uh, most um, verifies or um, that that these things are real, and it's the out-of-body experience. So what happens is um, these people, they die cardiac arrest, everything is shut off. There's no electrical activity whatsoever. Um, It's a time when you cannot form memories. So you're shut down. You shouldn't be able to come back and say anything happened because you're completely gone. And what will generally happen is, and this actually happens to most. So this is the one that happens most frequently is they'll generally, they'll come out of their body um, and they're usually above their body looking down. And now a huge number of them, will tell the doctors afterwards what happened with with detail. They'll say, you, yeah, you were over here and you told the uh, nurse to, you know, do such and such and she dropped a, a scalpel and what have you. And that's where the doctors kind of freak out. They're like, there's no way this person could have known it because they were facing up. Their eyes were covered. Some of them had come into the room completely dead. So it's just impossible. And they could tell exactly what happened. And that's kind of that theory, Dr. Pim Van Lommel, who was in the book, calls he talks about its um, non-local consciousness, that our conscious, where consciousness exists 
outside of our body. And I, and I find really interesting. Some people talk about like our brains are essentially like a sieve or like, you know, bringing in a radio signal, but a sieve because there's just so much going on and it has to be like distilled down into what we can understand. But these people pull out and as soon as they pull out, a lot of times they'll look at their body and initially they won't know what it is. And then they'll realize it. And they're like, oh, they have um, no interest in their body. They're like, oh, this person, oh, that really sucks. And But they become very disconnected right away from their physical body. And um, <clears throat> and generally, they start to have these incredible feelings, you know, very, very positive feelings. And then they'll generally pull out and more often than not, a next stage would be going into, you know, the tunnel that we've always heard about. Um, and they, uh, and, and that's where culture might come into this a little bit, because in my opinion, some of what they're seeing is, I don't want to say metaphor, but it's how they can understand it, you know, um, how, how they can take, you know, wherever they might be and give it some kind of form so that they could, you know, make it kind of a cohesive concept, something that they could understand themselves. So like for Westerners, we, we hear mostly about a tunnel. Um, they say the American Indian, when they would talk about it, it's a, a river with the Japanese. They're in like a, a cave. <clears throat> One of the interesting things is uh, when they go in the tunnel, and this is another thing I, I, you know, some describe it slightly different, different colors and so on. Now, one person attempts to touch it. You know, like I would be like, what, you know, this, what the hell is this thing? And I'd be, you know, rubbing, nobody like attempts to like feel it. They're not, I mean, they're interested, they're in it and they'll say, well, it was, you know, 10 feet wide or it was this or that, you know, those descriptions are a little bit different, but once they hit the tunnel, that's when it's like, they feel these, these feelings of like unconditional love, like just, they've never felt like this. They're so incredibly filled with energy and love and like everything is all right. Um, and, and then they start moving down the tunnel. Most of them don't really movement on the other side seems to happen more, um, you know, kind of, um, from thought, like, you know, some people say I walked, but it, it feels like you just, you want to go somewhere and you just kind of move towards that. Then within the tunnels, uh, oftentimes somebody will be there to like greet them and, you know, kind of take them to that next stage. And there's, you don't, they don't spend a lot of time in the tunnel. Very, very, very few people have a negative uh, near death experience. Um, it's like 97% are very positive. The other 3%, a good portion of them end up resolving, meaning it got scary. They, you know, they went down or whatever might have happened, but they're consistently, it's not like, well, 50-50. It's like, no, they're about 97. The ones that have bad ones tend to resolve. So they're scary at first, then they move on. Um, and if there's going to be a bad, you know, uh, experience, that's where it would start happening is in the tunnel. Then the next stage is they're out of the tunnel and then it just opens up. It can open up to a, you know, to a, just a energy it, you know, but very often it opens up into nature, a scene of nature where they'll walk out and it's like a field or a meadow. There may or may not be people in it. You know, uh, oftentimes there are people they recognize. Uh, a lot of times they'll meet like 
a grandmother, but the person is like 30 some odd years old, but they recognize them. They know it's that person. And I mean, you just have to hear these over and over. It's just kind of mind blowing. So from, from that experience, um, there may be somebody that kind of takes them around this realm and shows them around there. Oftentimes there are, um, you'll still, there'll be buildings. Uh, a lot of times they're like these incredible libraries, you know, you hear about, you know, they're given all of the, you know, knowledge of the universe, um, which you hear that actually quite a bit. I, I think of it sometimes as the Akashic records, you know, where people are just, and this is another interesting thing where my my wife was in Costa Rica, she did Bufo. And when she went and got shout out into this, you know, netherworld, there were very, there was, in terms of the energy there, it, there were some similarities. It's It's probably more similar in that sense to like a heaven experience Bufo is than ayahuasca, I would say. And in her experience, though, she was like, you know, she was like going through the records and then, no, 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 I want to see this. I want to see this. And it's like, bang. And she it was like incredible. And she said, you just, you just saw stuff. You understood stuff. So that, that happens a lot. They, they say oftentimes, and some of the stuff sounds like way out there, but it just happens over and over. People talk about like a way station where they're lined up like hundreds or, you know, thousands of them going somewhere as if this place that they go into is, you know, kind of uh, an area where they're getting acclimated, like here's where you are. And and then the next stage, uh, the near uh, the uh, life review, this is the most interesting one. Um, they'll generally be brought into some space, uh, enclosed space, um, or a place where they're by them. Uh, no one else is there but one person. And it's almost always one person, like a guide. It could be a relative. And what they'll start to see, you know, like all around them, it can it could be, or just, you know, a thousand TV screens or whatever it might be, which by the way, I experienced in Buffalo. I got, I got launched directly into a TV screen and didn't get through it, which is what I wanted to do. I just hit it, but th they'll see, um, you know, hundreds and they'll see things that happen in their lives and they'll see everything. I mean, time, you know, is, is very, very different there. They talk about past, present, and future as one. They're the same. We know that that's true. I've tried to wrap my head. If just think about that sometimes. And I've tried to even like this, understand it or experience it. I can't. I just can't wrap my head around it. But in quantum physics, we know that that's true. So they experience everything. But what's different is that they don't only experience their feelings, but they experience what the other person felt, how your actions made them feel. And, you know, for better or worse, you see the whole deal. Um, so you have that, but there's no like condemnation. It's not like, well, you really, you know, you, you screwed up here. You did this or that. It's like, no, no, no. This is like, it's all school. And um, so people come out of that with a a better understanding of what the hell is going on, why they experience these things, not feeling like, you know, shit about it because it's all school. I mean, we chose to go, you know, we, we chose to come here and uh, to learn. That's what you, you know, that's what you come away with. You come here to this place on earth to, uh, they say two things, to love and to learn. That's it. 
And a lot of what you experience when you get back up there is, oh, shit. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, these incredible feelings of unconditional love. But also you see, you know, what did I learn? Where did I not learn? Um, very, very specific. And they all, all the ones that have a life review and quite a fair amount of them do. I would, you know, I don't have a statistics in front of me, but I would say, you know, one, if they get deep enough into the NDE, I would say at least 50% have them. Um, and, and, you know, so it kind of goes on from there. I can tell you, you know, some other things, but those are, those are, and, and they, most of them are told they have to go back. Some of them are said, you know, it's your choice, but almost all of them said they have to go back and they're all like, I don't want to go back. There's no way I'm going back. Cause I've, you know, they're just blown away by what's up mm-hmm. there. And a lot of them talk about it later where they feel really guilty that they had kids, that they had a husband and they didn't care. Because from where they were coming from, they're like, I know where what they're where they're going to be. And time is doesn't have meaning, especially the amount of time we're down here. So they have this feeling of, I know I should feel something, but I don't want to go back. Um, I'd rather stay here than go back to my husband and my kids. And so a lot of them that do go back um have this guilt because they had that feeling. Um, but uh it's anyway, so that that's another thing that I really f- I, I found very interesting because who wants to say that, you know, when they come back? Yeah, I mean, I hate because they a lot of oftentimes they don't tell anybody that, you know, they think this was nuts or nobody's going to believe them or, you know, one of a number of things, reasons why they don't want to do it. Um, but that's one of the things they even after they've told their husband or whoever uh, wife, they won't tell them that generally because it's not, a, you know, it's like dude, I didn't want to come back. You know, I, I love you guys, but you know, I was fine. I was, and I knew you were going to be fine. So anyway, that's, uh, there's all, yeah. So it's, fascinating it's stuff, mind blowing. Yeah. It's really yeah. mind blowing. Well, there's a couple of things that come up there that, um, that will segue into, um, for one, you know, for those that don't know what the Bufo is, uh, let's uh, give them a brief explanation of that. And um, to some degree, I can kind of understand some of the things that you have mentioned, as you had said that, you know, over the years, as I've reflected on this and I've spoken to my wife about it is like, you know, what, why are we here? And what are some of these lessons exactly? And, at times, those were some of the conclusions I would come to, uh, that, you know, it's like a playground where we learn and, and perhaps when we pass away, there's this reflection time of where we were, what we did, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? Um, and it, it's a interesting way of looking at existence. Um, but, you know, I as an individual cannot really uh, make a definitive statement that it is or it isn't. It's just things that I've spent a, a great deal of time and years thinking about um, because I am self-employed. I have a lot of time to think. And because I work alone, I, I think all the time, thinking about all kinds of things. Sometimes it's... Uh, um, Sometimes it's uh, fruitful and sometimes it's not. It can lead to all kinds of places. 
but uh, it gives me that uh, that wide range. And it also makes sense to me that people who have crossed over don't feel like they want to come back and they don't feel anything about it at that very moment. Perhaps there's some things that change, right? The feelings that we have in existence in these physical bodies like guilt and pleasure and everything else, um, uh, perhaps they don't exist once you cross over. I mean, there is that feeling of uh, unconditional love and maybe that is a universal truth, but um, that is something I would probably spend some time thinking about. Uh, and it's only when they do come back to their bodies that all of a sudden they are feeling guilty. But when they were there, they didn't. There's also many other stories, um, whether it's science fiction or whatever, uh, that I have come across that talk about um, the the universal catalog of information, the library. Uh, and so when you talk about Bufo and how that was able to do that for you or for your wife, uh, can you elaborate on that? Tell the listeners and the watchers, what is Bufo? How does it work? What did you experience? What did your wife experience? Uh, I would say my wife experienced what I wanted to experience. You know, I ideally, um, I mean, Bufo is uh, the secretion from a Sonora, Sonora desert toad. Um, so it's a, it's a toad that comes from actually uh, southern United States and northern Mexico. Um, my wife went to a place in Costa Rica where she uh, went to a retreat, and I worked with it down in Peru. Uh, when I was actually there more for ayahuasca, but they're offering that a little bit more now. Um, but it is, it's very different, very different from ayahuasca. Um, the experience is short. It's about 15 minutes. Um, time gets bent. So you may think you were there for a lot longer. Um, and it's just really powerful and people describe it. And, and my experience of it was as if you're being shot out of a cannon. Uh, at the beginning of it. And uh, I, it was for me, the scariest thing I'd, I'd ever done. I, you know, I'd done a fair amount of ayahuasca. So, um, you know, you would think, uh, but, you know, it had been built up to me, Bufo, the Bufo experience so, so much that I knew it was going to be a lot more intense. And um, just a quick, quick story. Uh, when I went into the Maloka to do this, it was daytime. And again, that's very different. It's done more. It seems like it's done more in the daytime and, and more outside. Um, I was inside in a Maloka. I kind of wish I was outside. But anyway, so they're <clears throat> explaining, you know, this is what we do. And you hold the pipe and then we're going to light the thing and you have to breathe it in. And um, and then we're going to we're going to, you know, gently lay you down and then you're off. Um, anyway, so I had to go first. And so I didn't get to see what else, you know, how it was going to progress with other people. So I smoked this thing, which is brutal because the way they did it, you smoke in as much as you can, but you don't let it out. Um, and you let it sit there to cool in your lungs. Then you breathe in another one and then you do it a third time. So you're like about to pass out anyway, because there's just so much in you and you're holding it for so long. And then I let it go. And if you've ever seen these, I would recommend not watching people do this on YouTube, because you'll never, <clears throat> never want to go do it yourself. It's like, it's, <laughs> it's not, 
And it, anyway, there was a guy sitting next to me who I'd become friends with. He was from, uh, I think it was from Dubai, really good guy. So he was sitting right next to me. He was going to go after me. And he said he saw me take the thing in. He said, my arms just went down and I collapsed. My, my eyes went in the back of my head. And he just got up and built and bolted out of the Maloka. It's like, no way I'm doing this. <clears throat> so the way you want it to go is, you know, if you get launched, which it can, it can go kind of any way. I mean, there are other ways it can go, just like ayahuasca. Um, what you want to happen, um, which does happen to, I don't know the percentage. I should know this, but I don't. They essentially say they get shot out of a cannon and it's terrifying. The beginning of it is terrifying. And then you end up, and again, it could be different for everybody, but but I'd say if, I, if you have to generalize it, some kind of void uh, of just, you know, universal God love, where it's it, it almost sounds to me very similar to what a lot of people experience in the near-death experience when they have this incredible feeling of, you know, there's so much more going on and the feeling is so, it's it's ineffable. And you get that, you know, it's similar to certain, certainly with the NDE and what they experience. The one difference is it's, it, it appears that there is no body over there and there's usually not a lot of things, you know, you're just in this, this place. And a lot of times they don't know exactly what it is. You know, I haven't I haven't worked with it enough, um, or really even researched. I mean, I've listened to what people have said, but it's different that I know I know the near death experience because I read thousands of these testimonials. I can say that they're all you know the Bufo experience has got shades once you kind of break through. But that's what you want to do is kind of break through to the other side and then end up in that space and just get filled with this you know, bazooka of like love and uh, understanding, you know, or, or connection to everything. Um, and that's where my wife also was able to see the Akashic records. So that somehow came into her experience. And she said she was, you never see that Tom Cruise movie, uh, the minority report or whatever, where he's like moving stuff. And then he's like grabbing this and you know, he's everything was like on a big screen and and he would just that's what she was doing. She just like shelves a mile long and she would just push it down and then move it over and bang, there was information that she would grab. Um, and so she was just like absorbing all this incredible information. She she was just plugged in. Um, she had an amazing experience. My experience was very different. And and mine um <clears throat> I got shot out of a cannon, but I basically, you know, did not get through anything. I literally, I started to see static in front of me, like a wall of static. And then I saw my wife and daughter, like, basically like saying goodbye. And I was like, I was like filled with this incredible sense of uh, kind of grief because I was going to lose them. I just lost my son and I was being shot out into this void and my arms started dissolving into the static that was there. And and part of me, you know, there's so much a part of me that's just got all this fear and especially stuff I just went through. And, you know, the way I grew up was absolute chaos. And 
you know, so for me to let go, which is a lot of what I've tried to do all these years, you know, ego death, that whole thing, you know, how do I get through this shit? I just, man, this stuff's so scared the shit out of me. It's like, I don't know what you would call it, you know, spiritually, but it was basically like, no fucking way. And I just like, bam, I hit the screen, you know, like that static. And like, like in an instant, I was like, boom, I'm on my mat. I'm just sitting on my mat. So I like, I'm under major influence of this stuff because that happened in less than a minute and you've got enough in you for like 15 minutes. And I took, you know, a massive amount and I just bang, I got up and I start, I sat in like a lotus position and I just started, you know, thinking about shit and doing a lot of work, like personal work, you know, and, and dealing with a lot of the grief that I've been dealt with, you know, been dealing with my son. And it was like, he was there, like there, you know, kind of thing. And, I burned off so much karma, you know, in that, in that time. So I got a radically different experience than most people get. And I think most people either kind of get through or get lost and don't remember anything. But I like, bang, I hit the screen. I was on my mat. And like, just like with ayahuasca, when I get into that deep, I try and stay focused and I just work on my shit. You know, I work. That's what the shaman when I was in the Amazon jungle, he said, stay focused, you know, stay focused. So I did, and I took, you know, the, the, uh, hero's dose, you know, multiple, multiple times. So I was pretty, you know, slammed with uh, the ayahuasca too, but I always, I rarely, rarely ever just laid down. I was just constantly, you know, trying to rewire my brain and, you know, trying to stay, you know, I created this, uh, kind of mantra but it wasn't just uh in my head mantra i like made a sound like with this snapping that's just it's perfect every time i started losing it it was just like and then i would think of a word i ended up getting this tattoo dust um that i brought with me to the uh sacred valley so that was part of my mantra It'd be like you know it's all dust i'd look at this then i'd do this and I, so i could stay awake enough <clears throat> to do a shitload of work on myself. So there's, there's, you know, everybody has a different experience. Uh, I would say ayahuasca is more, more all over the place, can be so many different things. It seems like there's not, you know, Bufo is a little more direct. And also once you're in whatever space you're going to be in, assuming you're, uh, and I can't say conscious, but you're present, it's, in my experience, is you are focused. It's like laser focused. You were, you know, you're just solid there. Ayahuasca can be like, you know, kind of like, whoa. But it, it appears to me, and certainly my experience and when I spoke with, with my wife, it's very, when you get there, it's exact. You know, it's very crisp and precise. And that's what I experienced also. But uh, my, my objective is in the next few months, I want to go to Costa Rica where she went, where you do just Bufo, no, no ayahuasca, because I want to do it enough times where i kind of break through because you want to so experience what she did. yeah yeah and it's so for me and so many you talk to most people it's the scariest thing ever so you know i did this if you and i'm like okay well if i do it two or three times a day for you know seven days or ten days at some point i'm going to be like okay i'm not going to die because once it starts you think you're done you know i did i'm like i'm i'm you know, the second time was the same kind of thing. I got launched, hit the screen, landed on my mat, you know, so I couldn't get through it on just two attempts. 
And I was doing so much ayahuasca over this two weeks. That was what I was there for. That trying to do both of them, man, I was just just crushed. Um, it made me a lot less afraid of doing ayahuasca, um, but I couldn't get through <laughs> it. Yeah. So I, but I, I do want to go somewhere where I can just, you know, hit it, hit that, you know, over and over and over until I, you know, kind of get out, get through it. That, that's that's the hope. It's pretty amazing, man. What's available? I mean, uh, nowadays. Uh, you know, in our previous conversation, you mentioned um, the primary reason, and you have uh, many of your family members, your daughter, your wife, all of you guys work in um, similar fields dealing with uh, PTSD, um, psychedelic therapies, uh, things things of that nature. And when we were talking about this, you mentioned your belief was that the only reason why uh, it's being widely accepted here in the States now is primarily the fact that we're seeing incredibly positive results on veterans. And that's what, and you expressed to me that that could very well be the only reason why they can't really go back on this now. Yeah. I mean, this is my theory. It's only, but it, but it makes so much sense um, because, yeah, once they've had that kind of success, and a lot of lives of these veterans have either, you know, have been saved. You know, the the uh, um, the suicide rate, you know, among veterans that that came back from Iraq and Afghanistan, the numbers are mind blowing. And these guys that have PTSD, that you know, it's like treatment resistant. They're not you know, weren't getting better. How do you help these guys? So then they did, you know, you know, a lot of it with, uh, I think they also did MDMA. Um, right. but now, and ketamine. Yeah, and ketamine and psilocybin. So yeah, what are you going to tell the rest of the country? You know, excuse me, if, uh, if you're using this for the veterans and it's having this, and, and, you know, there's a lot of research now, there's a lot of numbers on paper you can't deny. And you're not going to stop doing it for the veterans because it's, you know, you know, you can't you can't not try and help a veteran, especially in this country, which is great because these guys need the support. But if you're getting that kind of success, you can't you can't not now allow you know the rest of the population use it. So that's it, man. And then to me, that was I mean, yeah, we're progressing. You know, we're we're becoming more mature as a culture. We're you know we're becoming more aware and awakened. Although I you know I I I think I could argue the opposite. In, in a lot of things, but, um, you know, that, that is hard to, you know, what do they say? It's, uh, the, the, uh, can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, you know? And so now you're seeing it being, um, legal in States and, um, you know, a lot of people aren't playing with this stuff for recreation. And I never used a psychedelic except for kind of working on myself and that's not to say everybody does that, but you know the the you know the powers that be have to respect that you know people and let's not forget that people have uh, been using these things for thousands of years, and um, you know there's a reason that these things have been around. There's a reason that you see you know images of you know mushrooms or whatever it might be in paintings that go back, or in sculpture or in high, petroglyphs that go back you know thousands and thousands of years. So we're just, you know, kind of getting back on board. I mean, <clears throat> we kind of blew it in the in the '60s. You know, you had um, it was just 
really opening up and it was uh you know it was legal back then and <clears throat> you know when they first started you know kind of studying it timothy leary and richard richard alpert and that whole scene at harvard um they were doing actually some really good research but then like <clears throat> you know then it started to get a little bit out of hand you know then people started using it for fun and then you know the lsd um kind of could get passed around very easily and then you had like Timothy Leary and and a couple other people that were really they wanted everybody to take it put it in the drinking water which you know that's a great idea if I get it you know I think you know everybody in Congress should be forced to you know take this stuff several times we send them all down to Peru um yeah maybe but, then they can uh, develop a fucking conscience huh yeah god god bless them uh I mean so uh, you know they kind of they kind of ran that whole you know psychedelic bus into into a brick wall back then because you know you also had Vietnam was happening and now you got people burning draft cards and they got a tab of LSD in the other hand so they you know so they they, they saw nothing good and they uh, and then they they branded a ske schedule one drug so it has no useful purpose and you know it's right up there then with you know cocaine and heroin and all these kinds of things. And it's still, by the way, I believe it's still a Schedule One drug, if you can believe that. And that's mushrooms, LSD, uh, ayahuasca, um, you know, peyote, uh, probably peyote mushrooms. Yeah. Um, but that's my theory, and and I, I it makes so much sense. It's it's out there, it's working, and they're not going to stop giving it to the and I, you know, it's just like so much of our technology comes through the military, you know, like the internet and all these kinds of things. It's like a proving ground almost. And once some of the stuff works, you know, it's like you got to let the rest of the country, you know, participate, um, you know, benefit from whatever it is, if it's a technology, because we're all paying for it. And, you know, that's another thing. It's like, so, so yeah, that's my theory long about long. I think that's absolutely true though. Um, that is the, that is the proving grounds. I mean, it's, uh, oftentimes things that are developed in secret it's military application first eventually there's civilian application and then that's uh depending on who holds those patents and wants to mass produce it gets the rights to it and um and that's how we have a lot of things today uh which is pretty awesome at least uh it gets into the public's hands at some point uh, yeah. but, uh, but there are still many things out there that we don't have access to. I mean, to date, we have over 3,500 energy related patents that have been seized, uh, on behalf of national security concerns. Um, and some of those are pretty wild to think about. Uh, and this planet could certainly use, uh, alternative energy sources, especially if it's cleaner, um, more abundant, um, more accessible things like that but um whoa, one one more thing that came to my mind and i failed to ask you the last time when we were speaking um the loss of your son um how did that happen well what happened to him if you don't um, mind me asking yeah no he uh you know he he was um he he had he came out with uh um what do you call it? Colic, you know, where they're just like, you know, when they're born and he, he had a lot of, you know, um, 80, like ADHD off the charts, like not this, well, everybody's got ADHD and let's give them something like this was serious. So, 
and as he got as he got older, you know, that starts to become, you know, especially when you start going through puberty and, you know, it's hard to do stuff. And, you know, he's, he was smart as hell and talented, you know, poetry, you know, art, artist, the whole thing. Um, but then, you know, to quiet his mind and, you know, in our town, I'm sure every town, you know, these kids, they get a hold of, uh, um, you know, what are they, are these uh, uh the painkillers or whatever, uh, like opioids. Yes. Yeah. So they're passing them around and some kids, you know, it's, they can do them and then stop doing them after a while. And some kids, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be addicted. They're going to become addicted. And so that's what happened to him. And so, you know, we spent 10 years of, you know, trying to right the ship. And in fact, one of the things we did that helped probably more than anything is we sent him to, um, I forget where he went down south. It might have been in Peru, but to do ibogaine. And ibogaine, yeah, that's being, it's actually a plant from uh, Gabon, West Africa. And yeah. it's being, it's, it's, I actually had some friends that just went and uh, did it for, uh, they went to on a one week retreat. It's pretty brutal. Like physically, it's very difficult. Um, it's, it's not like ayahuasca, like initially I'm like, oh yeah, ibogaine sounds like, but it's not, it's very different. Um, but it has a tremendous, uh, um, healing ability, uh, much more specifically for people that have addiction, um, and, uh, you know, opioids for sure, drinking all these kinds of things. And so he, he, he basically, he did that. And for over a year, he was, you know, it was all gone, you know, but it worked it, is what you're yeah, saying. It, it worked. And, but, you know, you kind of, a lot of the stuff you just don't know. It's like, okay, what do we send him again? Does he want to go again? Does this stuff work? Do you do that? So he was down in Peru, actually, he became um, certified as a shaman apprentice. So he was like, you know, helping out in these, uh, you know, uh, ceremonies, you know, getting people through it, get helping them integrate and so on. But what happened was um, at some point he came to move down where we are. We moved down to uh, a little island off Sarasota and he came and moved here too. And then COVID hit. So he was like new to the area. Um, he lived up in, in um, St. Pete. And once COVID hit, he didn't know anybody. He couldn't get a job. He really got isolated. And that's like, especially for a kid like him, not a good idea. So he relapsed. And then, you know, right away, you know, the whole fentanyl scene. So he was one of those, you know, and I told him, I mean, it's like putting a gun to your head, you know, that stuff's already dangerous. But now with what they're putting in it, you know, and and especially if you haven't been doing it a lot, you become much. It's it affects you. Haven't built up like I don't know if it's a tolerance or what, but often people that that relapse, they're the ones that that really so many of them die because their bodies just you know they can't handle it. I don't know what it is. Oftentimes uh, they take they take the dose that they're familiar with, right, from previous right. experiences, and that's what ends up killing them. I'm yeah. well familiar with the uh, with the situation and. I'm sorry that you lost him that way. Um, there was a there was a friend I had who passed away in a similar manner in 2015, I believe, or 2016, and left behind two kids and a wife. And all he wanted, you know, he would he just wanted to celebrate his promotion, do some heroin. That's what he enjoyed, and uh, it fucking killed him, man. Yeah. 
It's and uh, now and now they're putting. I don't know what this new you know substance is, but they said it's a multiple more dangerous than fentanyl, and it's like you know what what yeah. I mean why. Yeah, like I mean, well, which one? I mean, are you talking about xylazine or I mean, there's a, there's a number I don't, of I don't even yeah number. Once of I heard concoctions. about fentanyl, I'm like, you know, I I don't even want to know about this shit anymore. Yeah, um, it's getting but, crazy. I mean, it's people are people want to get high regardless, and I think it's um, as we talked about it, it's it's ex- the desire for comfort or seeking comfort of some type has existed for a long, long time. And as the substances have evolved and, um, and replaced what used to be accessible, um, there, there is no shortage of individuals seeking that we all do it. I've studied addiction for a long time. And, um, even reflecting on my own, I can say that it's, uh, uh, it's difficult to escape, and you just have to choose wisely what uh, what it is you're willing to compromise uh, to get high. Um, it, it's almost impossible to be completely straight edge, right? Um, addiction doesn't really discriminate age, gender. None of those things matter. Rich, poor. Um, it's what type of stimulation are you seeking? And um, it makes sense that uh, for your son to be isolated during COVID and just being bored, nothing to do, can't work. No one, no one was able to work. No one was. And uh, I think during that two to three year period, a lot of uh, there was a lot of overdoses and substance abuse increased um, exponentially. Yeah. There was Um, usually, I think it was, 50,000 a year. And when COVID hit, it was a hundred thousand, you know, doubling wow. I mean, crazy doubling. numbers. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, and I think the next year was the same. And again, I don't know exact numbers, but the numbers are off the charts. Yeah. You know, I think people uh, isolated, you know, and then working from home and not, you know, there's just this whole culture got a little, you know, went off the rails for a while. It, it also contributed to more divorces. People had to spend more time with their spouses realizing like, uh, you know what? Turns out <laughs> I really don't like you. I mean, yeah. not only am I not in love with you, but I'm kind of stuck with you and spending this many hours with you uh, trapped inside uh, made a lot of people realize there's this, this is not the person for me. How the yeah. hell did I end up here? Uh, yeah. And it's only being forced in that cage to where you can reflect and actually realize it for the first time. So that's, that was another outcome of uh, that type of isolation and long-term closures. And I mean, there's a, there's many other things associated with it. I'm sure depression rose drastically as well. Uh, So it's terrible to think, but, uh, the way I see it is, uh, I don't think addiction will go anywhere. I mean, what you know, the most common addictions that we see is the the seeking of stimulation. So that could be entertainment, you know, our phones, our our YouTube shorts. God knows, yeah, I now, can go. Th- uh, you look at and you want to talk about a rabbit hole, you know. <laughs> and I've, I've played around with some of this stuff a little bit, but AI is really going to suck in. I mean. 
you know, video games we thought were kind of dangerous. These in terms of like people becoming, you know, um, uh, hypnotized. Now you throw AI and virtual reality, you know, and, you know, these kids are going to be able to sit down with 3D, you know, worlds and interact with, you know, you know, they're, you're not going to be able to distinguish and they'll have people that are going to be their best friends and, you know, girlfriends and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. I mean, that's where it's headed, which is really, I'm fascinated by the simulation theory. I'm not sure if you kind of looked at that. Um, it's very, very interesting. It's a whole another conversation, but um, the simulation theory is, uh, I'll, I'll say that a lot, you know, Elon Musk uh, said that it's probably uh, a million to one that we're not living in the simulation theory, meaning we almost certainly are. And yeah. you kind of, it's a little hard to describe what it is, um, but I, that's something I would, you know, go on YouTube, punch in simulation theory and watch, you know, watch some of this stuff. And that'll, that'll bend your mind. And, and I, I think it makes sense. It's crazy, but the logic there's like, I think it was Niels, I forget his name, uh, who did, uh, he's a professor somewhere in England and he did a, a doctor of philosophy, I think. Anyway, he can, he basically went through this concept and, boiled it down to there's three possibilities in terms of whether we are living in a simulation. And anyway, I would, uh, I would watch that. That's a whole nother conversation, but very, very, very interesting. I've done so. I, I've, I've heard about what Elon said about simulation theory. I, I dove, I dove into it for, uh, for a little while, but um, there's some aspects of things we've heard in the past that, um, kind of contribute to the possibility of it being um, true uh people that have spoken about uh manifestation people that have spoken about uh many elements of these things in, in different in different ways um tell me that they could be certainly a possibility that it's all a simulation um, and the mind is much more powerful than uh, we can ever truly conceive. And I suppose we'll find out in the next century or so. It's going to take a lot more research and documentation. But um, before I let you go, there was a, a few other things here. I noticed you're an award-winning documentary filmmaker. And I see that you you've had a lot of your stuff aired in different um, networks. And I'm just curious about this. Is there anything you want to throw out there, any documentary that you would recommend I check out today? Uh, I'll tell you, I I did a a number of, stylistically, I did some very kind of new things to the time. So they were very, yeah, very interesting. I would say that if I were going to tell somebody, hey, watch this, um, I started doing these things called poetry films, and they're short films. And uh, it's, it's I would take a poem, and I would wrap it with music and images. So, uh, you know, and I, I again, I read like thousands of poems, and I'm not a poetry person, but um, somehow poetry got into one of my 
films because uh, one of the people that I had interviewed was Robert Bly, who's a uh, um, very famous American poet. And um, I had him recite some poetry <clears throat> and I was looking for transitions between uh, segments of the film because I had structured the film almost like chapters. So between each chapter, I wanted some kind of segue that kind of like music came up and, and I had some kind of, you know, something, some words that kind of set the stage for the next chapter. So uh, I took, I took him reading some of these poets, some of these poems, and then I put them to music and image and it just blew my mind. I was like, it was to me just the experience of listening to someone who has the kind of voice of a Robert Bly who's reading a poem that he he uh, um, interpreted like from Antonio Machado, um, and and you know a poet reading a poem is is different than you know just a, you know an ordinary person reading it because the inflection it's all there. So when I put that to music and then I put it over images, you know, these were nature images, it just kind of blew my mind. And I said, you know, I want to do a whole film series of this. So I, I did a series and in the series, there are 21 short films. The poets are like uh, um, Langston Hughes, Antonio Machado. Um, uh, oh, my God. Carl Sandburg. Um, Ryokan Taigu. So some haiku poetry. Um Neruda, who ended up being my favorite, Rumi. Um, so a lot of these, uh, Coleman Barks actually recited some of the poetry. He's very famous for bringing Rumi to the United States, um, you know, interpreting his poetry, translating his poetry. Anyway, so there's a, there are 21 of them that I did. But if you go to my, uh, my website, th my three favorite ones are on the site. Uh, there's a section of film and I have, uh, and if you go to the film page, there's three of them, and uh, I, they're my favorite. And so if someone was going to watch anything that I would say, you know, this is what I would watch. It's not a film. Uh, each of these might be seven minutes long, um, but they'll, they just, I just love to watch them, you know, as many, I mean, I've had millions of views on these things over the years. And I was like, again, I want to tip my cap to myself, but it was one of the first ones, maybe the first one that ever put these out like this poetry shorts. Now you'll see film festivals. I've been in like, you know, these have been in like 70 film festivals. Um, so people really enjoy them. It's very immersive. You know, you just kind of, if you can, you know, you could watch, you watch them in a, on a big screen in a dark room. And uh, it's, it's like a real trippy experience, but you can get them on the website. Um, and that's uh www.project-shift.com and it's on the okay. page titled uh, film and you'll find it there and that to me is uh, that's definitely worth taking a look at I'll do so tonight with my wife um, we uh, we always like to spend a, an hour or so watching some stuff and uh, I'm curious I want to check this out I did as I go through your your profile and your bio i'm like this is pretty nuts you've done so much you've contributed so much uh, whether it's artistically um and um, i notice here you've had uh, stuff on gaia tv 
uh, those guys put out some really interesting stuff. Yeah. So, some of it, you know, really out there. Some of it, um, there's science that they, you know, and research they're conducting to uh, to kind of show the public, like, there's more to this. Um, I've always found what Gaia produces uh, quite fascinating. Yeah. Even, even if it's in the world of science fiction, um, I still find it so interesting and uh, and enchanting. And, yeah, they have and, a lot of thought provoking. Yeah, definitely thought provoking. I have a, a documentary that I did actually with my wife. She's a, also a, a Ayurvedic uh, practitioner, and we okay. did a film called Healing the Mind, and that's still on uh, Gaia. They've been running it for like ten years, um, but you can still watch it there. And it looks at you know a synthesis of Western medicine and Ayurveda in dealing with things like ADHD, you know, anxiety for, you know, for everyone, but for younger, you know, people uh, more specifically. So it really gets into what Ayurveda is and how we can kind of pull that into our culture a little bit more. And it's done in a pretty cool style. So like none of the documentaries I do are like straight ahead documentaries. We just sit down and, and we interview some really interesting people uh, from India um, and some, you know, really well-known people from the United States but that's uh that's one to take a watch uh healing the mind it's it's on gaia check that one out too i, I absolutely love what those guys uh create just just because of that it's like it, it it's stuff and and ideas that make me think and um and when they have science to back up uh the the research and what they're producing it's like even better because like cool i can dive into this a little bit deeper and and truly see like how uh, how real is this? And um, and so I, every now yeah, and again, I like I'll what come they across. Do. Yeah. I was actually just talking to them about six months ago um, because I said, you know, hey, you know, how do you pick your content? You know, because I produced it and then they bought it. But I said, you know, do you, because now they're starting to, you know, produce their own. And they said, well, if you give us an idea and we're interested, you know, then we could do something. So I came up with a, a series and it was going to be psychedelics. One was going to be on psilocybin. One would be on ayahuasca. One was on ibogaine. There was going to be four of them. And I said, yeah, this sounds, you know, it sounds really cool. And I was going to go to Peru to do the, uh, you know, the ayahuasca. I was going to go to Gabon, West Africa for that, you know, for the ibogaine. And um, so they were very interested. And uh, so I gave them the budget, you know, and it's, it wasn't crazy because I, you know, I love to edit. I do all, I do the whole deal. I love to make film. Um, that's my, my favorite thing in the world to do is editing. Um, anyway, they said, well, that's just way too much money, you know? And uh, I said, well, how much, how much do you pay per film? And they're like, we'll pay like, you know, 30 or $40,000. And I'm like, and I'm like uh, for one film, I'm like, how, how can you possibly make a film for that kind of, it's, it was crazy. So what I was going to go on site, you know, Costa Rica, Africa, Peru, this whole thing. So it was a great concept for a series. But when I heard what they, what the budget was, I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't even do it. Even if I'm doing everything myself, I mean, I don't need to get paid. You know, I just need for everything to get paid. So I'm not, you know, losing money. But yeah. I thought Gaia would be a great platform for it. But they they can, you know, get the rights. You know, they'll probably go to like film festivals or other places where they can bring in content that they don't have to pay for. But if they're producing their own, they pay nothing. And I don't want to go out and like try and raise money and, you know, 
um, you know, take undertake something like that. I wanted them to do it because then it's like, hey, you know, if you've if you've paid for it, you're going to promote it, and then it's right. going to really go. Because our film, when our first one was on there, and they did a little promotion, we got the views were insane. How many views we got? But then it's like, you know, it's like these algorithms, the new stuff comes on, they start pushing people here or there. Every once in a while, they'll, ours will get kicked in and then it takes off. It's just strange. But that was the series I was really kind of getting into doing um, because then I knew I didn't have to try and sell it to anybody or, you know, anything. They would just take it, plug it in and go with it. So I felt like it was, you know, it was going to do something for people. It would get done because it's a weird business, you know, trying to get somebody, you know, films on Netflix and these other places it's it's the whole business is crazy so but it would have been a cool series maybe someday yeah uh, it's not over you can continue to try and it's, it, that's exactly what it is though it is a business and um things cost money uh considering you want to do things on site so plane tickets and lodging and let's say okay great let's say you're not getting paid but those things do need to get paid yeah um and then your travel costs um to and from on-site off-site it's it's kind of crazy that yeah, uh, i feel like such a small budget i mean 30 or 40 grand may pay for two of those trips maybe three right if it was uh east africa or west africa and and then one other location um and maybe if you only spent a week but how much how much you know content can you really uh get in a week's time um, it would require a lot of preparation, a lot of communication, coordination with the the locals there of like, hey, I'm coming and I'm only yeah. going to be here for five days. We kind of need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and I wanted, <clears throat> my feeling is you got to have, they got to have skin in the game because then they're going to promote it. You know, if they just get it true. from somebody off the shelf, it might be like, just throw it in our catalog and maybe peach, people watch it. Maybe they don't. But if they spend money and they got to spend enough money, forget about like, I need to make a lot of money on it, but enough where they got skin in the game and they're going to really promote it. You know, outside of that, I, I don't really have an interest in doing film anymore. Although I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to do an in, indie feature next year called Storming Heaven based on uh, two chapters of the book, my new book. And one of the chapters called The Maze. That's when I went into the desert. Like 40 days and 40 nights, I decided I'm going to burn some karma, you know, break, you know, just totally crack. And uh, so I went I went into, this was a number of years ago, I went into there. Um, and then, so it was going to be half that and then half my first trip down to Peru. Because I was like, it, both stories are just crazy, you know? I mean, they're in, yeah. intense and they're spiritual, but they're just crazy and they're funny. And they're just, you know, so I might, I'm probably going to try and do that next year, Storming Heaven. I look forward to it. That's one area that I um, completely forgot to ask you about the time you spent in the desert. I know we talked about it uh, last week when we spoke, but um, I failed to bring it up today. So Perhaps next time we meet again, uh, we can talk about that, talk about your potential new movie that you want to release and everything else. You're a wealth of yeah, knowledge, I, DJ. I appreciate yeah. the work that you've done and and um, and the contributions. And I appreciate that you took time to come on today. Yeah, I really enjoy it. And uh, anytime, there's a lot to talk about. It's nice. We were talking about uh, finding your people. And not, you know, yeah. it's hard to. 
And uh, so, you know, it's uh, kind of kindred spirit. I enjoy the talk. So anytime you want to do it. 